I'm Andre from The Mental Health, and I'm here today with Professor Helen Herman, uh, Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry at Origin and the Centre for Youth Mental Health at the University of Melbourne, and also the Director of the WHO Collaborating Centre in Mental Health at Melbourne. Hello, Helen. Warm welcome. Hello, Andre. Thank you. Tell us a bit about um, your background first and how you ended up doing what you currently do. Well, I'm... Uh... A psychiatrist but before that a public health physician so I've always looked at psychiatry from the point of view of what can we do in terms of the people and the environment around the person as well as with the person themselves and what can we do to make communities better places for mental health that's taken in me in a number of directions including to working in a mental health service in Melbourne and being engaged in the reshaping of it a long time ago in the time of the first mental health reform in the 1990s and uh, moving to more community-based services at that time. And then I've um, had some work with the World Health Organization through our collaborating center and for a short time as a staff member as mental health advisor in the Western Pacific region. And in later years have um, worked also with the World Psychiatric Association. So looking at how national associations of psychiatrists around the world can contribute to global mental health. The commission that we're going to, I'm going to be talking about at the Congress, which is about um, really about depression and the, the Lancet Journal um, suggested that um, I might like to take a lead on this topic of depression uh, some years ago. And we teamed up with the World Psychiatric Association and a, a group of um, wonderful colleagues, there are 24 other people engaged with this and worked with The Lancet and uh, over a period of about four years, including the last couple of years during the pandemic. So tell me a bit about the relationship between community psychiatry, social psychiatry, this kind of whole person, social justice kind of approach to mental health and depression. One of the first things about depression is that very few people know what anyone else is talking about when they say the word depression. So this is... Uh, partly to do with um, the way we're, the way we stand with each other in society and the way we regard ourselves. There are a lot of myths. There are a lot of um, reasons that people become depressed or, or don't become uh, depressed in the face of very difficult circumstances and the way that people recover. Now, these are things that um, relate to the way we live, the way that um, societies are structured, the way that uh, people and families cope in their own communities and the way that our schools work, as well as uh, the way that we are as individuals with each other, the way that we, we might uh, behave day to day. So it's, it's a complex web of causation in depression and the 
role of uh, social psychiatry and social justice is in considering the conditions that we provide in society and for the, the way that um, work is structured and the way that equity plays out in people's lives. So they get educational and work opportunities, are parents supported equally? And the exposure to conflict at home, in the families, or to terrible events such as those happening in the world now have a, a telling effect on people, particularly as um, children and even, even prenatally, the way that um, people's outlook on life and propensity to develop mental ill health is shaped by the experience of previous generations is included in the, the uh, matters that we looked into. So let's just be clear about causation before we talk about what we do about depression and how we can help to prevent and, and intervene. You're speaking there about kind of environmental influences and psychosocial influences. What about the kind of biological and genetic? This is a complex condition that's caused by all sorts of different influences, isn't it? Exactly. That, um, the, in fact, the search for one cause that explains everything has held, held us back, just as it's held back um, medicine and healthcare in general. And that's becoming more apparent whether we're thinking about heart disease or cancer. And in, it's equally true in mental health conditions, in, particularly so in depression, that um, there don't appear to be um, particular, very frequently at least, very, any particular genetic changes that, that bring on depression. It's more that they're... Um, a whole range of possibly thousands of different genetic variants that influence the possibilities of becoming depressed depending on the circumstances. And the many other variables, that the, the, the way that the circumstances of a person's life and particularly the experiences of their early life will interact um, and each one of these interactions is affected by the family, by the, the uh, neighbourhood and by um, things that are happening in the broader society as well. So it's, um, it's, an, it's an interweaving of nature and nurture right throughout the life course. And um, I think one, one of the things that it's still... With, it's important to talk about to the wider community, at least. I think many people in the mental health um, world are well aware of it, but people more broadly are perhaps not as aware that um, the onset of depression is in early and midlife rather than later in life when other uh, non-communicable diseases or health conditions are, have their onset. And hence the long-standing consequences and the so-called burden of disease begins um, in, in the 20s and even sometimes even earlier and, and can extend and, and cascade through life. And this focus on prevention and early intervention that we've seen in lots of different mental health conditions, I guess 
one thing we know about depression is once you've had a severe episode, your chances of having another one are more likely. And then when you've had two, your chances of having another one are more likely. So it really does drive this prevention agenda. What's the evidence? What are the best ways to prevent in a kind of universal sense or in a kind of targeted sense? The first thing we uh, we say in the commission, and this is the ba- on the basis of reviewing uh, a range of people reviewing the, the evidence, that um, we underuse the possibilities that exist according to the evidence. Now, we, we have experiential understanding that, um, uh, that wider inequities and uh, wider events are not good for mental health. But we also have evidence now through the pandemic that the onset of depression as well as anxiety is, um, is great, has been greater during these years of the pandemic. And there's been a recent systematic review published by The Lancet covering the years, covering the months um, in 2020. So we, we know that um, the likelihood of, of uh, depression is influenced by wider societal events and by people who are living in disadvantaged circumstances, particularly relative to others in their communities, are more likely to experience mental ill health and depression. We've moved from the idea that was uh, was fairly um, widespread uh, even 30 or 40 years ago that um, mental ill health is a luxury for for the wealthy that the well-off countries, um, depression was a luxury um, or considering considering what what to do about depression was uh, an option for people in those places. But we now know that the burden of depression is borne by people in low and middle income countries predominantly. And the uh, conditions of uh, poverty, poor education, failing to deal with climate change uh, will influence uh, the likelihood of depression. Then then we have evidence that um, adverse events early in childhood, early childhood adversity is a a potent uh, contributor to ill health of all types, including depression and that um, support for parenting and support for um, or the prevention of violence in families, including violence towards um, or intimate partner violence and violence towards women will indirectly through the effect on the offspring as well have a, a significant contribution to depression. And then violence in the schoolyard, bullying, we have uh, a growing body of evidence that preventing bullying is important. And more and more insight, including in um, low-income settings in India in particular, that um, intervening in schools in a broader sense, as we do here in Australia, we have uh, programs of support for mental health in schools, but intervening to improve the school climate through looking at the relationships between teachers and students and among students and the support for teachers 
that these can uh, improve mental health in young people in schools. Um, I think we could go on and talk about uh, the, the workplace, that there is a whole body of literature on the importance of um, changing the atmosphere in workplaces, as well as any specific um, approaches to referral or recognition. What's even more important, in, it's becoming understood, is, um, is working to improve conditions and a sense of um, personal relationships being um, positive rather than difficult for people in workplaces. And then support for older people, that even though onset of depression is most frequent in younger people, still a significant group of people become depressed or more possibly or equally possibly um, have a recurrent recurrence of depression that they may have had earlier in life or its con continuation. And often, particularly in older people, but throughout life, um, that depression accompanies other illnesses. So when people become more prone to other illnesses and disabilities, then depression is uh, likely to, to occur. And it's, I think probably just the last thing to comment on in terms of prevention is that um, substance, harmful use of alcohol and, uh, and other uh, drugs and of uh, legal or illegal can um, promote the onset of depression. Wow, you've done this before as a tour de force of prevention. Um, fantastic. <laughs> I think just listening to you speak there and kind of reflecting on it, it, it really strikes me that mental health is a political issue, you know, not just in society, but at the front line. And thinking about the implications of that for practitioners, you know, actually the, the way that you can help somebody um, may, may be referring them for talking therapy or suggesting they get more exercise or try a bit of mindfulness. It may be prescribing them a drug, but actually it may also be helping with their housing benefit claim or making sure they're not lonely and they join some sort of walking group and all these sorts of issues. Do you think mental health services are adapting to be that kind of holistic social intervention for people? Or do you think they are still stuck in this very clinical mindset? Well, I think it's developing quickly. I mean, we've had the Royal Commission in Victoria just um, reported this time last year, uh, a Royal Commission on mental health in the state. And one, some of its recommendations include uh, well-being centres for adults and older adults in, in uh, right throughout the state and um, centres for for young people, supporting the headspace centres that um, support not only mental health clinically, but have um, uh, substance abuse, um, general health services, gen primary health care, and also um, vocational and educational support and housing support in many instances. So I think we are getting that understanding. So to be able to intervene with people whether they're young or, or older, when they come for support or care or wonder what's the matter. And also having practitioners recognise that this may be a problem for people who come and really don't have a sense that they may have um, a mental health problem. They may uh, 
come feeling tired or having aches and pains or other illnesses as well, and particularly when it's linked with other illnesses. But in addition, there's the, um, the broader action. I think we also need the, uh, the broader community and the, the body politic to understand that um, this is the job for the treasurer, not just the health minister. And the Minister for Education and the Social Welfare and uh, the, the commissions on, we've had uh, Royal Commission's inquiries as, as you've had, had in other countries on prevention of violence and institutional abuse of children and all of these matters. And I think a very important consideration in, in this, this country is the situation of our First Nations people, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who um, have um, experienced uh, complex trauma. There's still high rates of child removal and um, the barriers that people face to being able to live a mentally healthy life uh, are, are very high in those communities, that's where social justice is most important. We've known about depression for many years, but we still don't really know what helps for whom and why. We've got all these different interventions that are effective and there's quite good evidence for, but they don't work for everyone. Is there ever gonna be a more exciting, more effective, safer, intervention speak to the scientists and you get really excited pockets around you know psychedelics or some sort of new kind of intervention what's your thinking or do you think we're going to always have a bunch of stuff that doesn't really work that well for everyone well i, I think actually we we do get excited um, um some of us some of it's um thinking about what's possible for a lot of people and then thinking about what's needed for those who are affected in particular ways. But you mentioned earlier that um, suggesting to people, talking to them about what they can do, what's, what sort of self-care that can, can be, that can be helpful at, at certain stages of the condition. And that's not to say that their behaviour has brought this on. It's more to say that um, there are things that, that are known to help some people they can do themselves so the first thing to consider is that we do we do set out in the commission too um, the idea of staging of the of uh, depression that uh, the onset and and uh, cause of depression that just as in uh, has been developed developed over recent decades in cancer and treatment of uh, heart disease and so on so that when, when people and families are worried or they're encouraging them to seek uh, help and support, either from um, going online or, but more particularly, go, not being um, worried about going to a doctor, going to a, a, to a general practitioner in this country and talking, the the GPs are being more and more trained to recognise and to understand that watchful waiting can often be very useful and um, uh, advising on things 
that people can do, like exercise, like uh, um, understanding better what's what's happening, considering the um, the importance of relationships and what might be happening in a person's life, and then the um, the use of more formal therapies, and uh, when a condition moves to become a recognizable or diagnosable depression, what are the lines of treatment? And we've um, provided uh, uh, some of our colleagues created a really nice diagram which shows, you know, there are three or four possible lines of intervention. And um, the, the way that, that um, it, it's expected that um, we can try one thing and then another, and that there will be a solution found for most people who persist. And this is not unlike other parts of healthcare. We don't, um, we undersell ourselves. And I know there's a, a huge, uh, I mean, there's a lot of discussion about do antidepressants work? Is this a, a product of the, the, the big pharma? Is this industry and um, medicalizing sadness? There are all sorts of um, discussions and even myths about depression. That we, I think um, we do our best to refute in the commission. And having people clear that there are things we can do, not only helps us get rid of stigma, which is one of the big barriers to going to receive treatment, persist with it, or even know about the possibilities. I think one of the, the myths is that once depressed, always depressed. I think even, even people who train in medicine don't understand the cause of depression. When we really look closely at the, the uh, cause of depression, you realize that um, most people recover um, a number of people will have a, have a recurrence and some people have a persisting disorder that comes and goes or may, may be very hard to treat or to see the end of. But to recognise that that's a minority as it is in most health conditions and there are a range of, of treatments to be used, whether they be the talking therapies, whether they be the medication of one sort or another, and then the, the increasingly um, uh, interesting field of um, neuromodulation that begins with the electroconvulsive therapy or ECT, which again can be a very safe and helpful um, solution for some people who have um, severe or even unremitting um, depression. And I, I think um, in my own experience of, um, I think one of the most rewarding experiences I've had in psychiatry was seeing a young mother, which is the time when depression can come on and be unrecognized and um, cause immense family difficulties and for the, for the mother, for the father, for the child, um, particularly when the, the, uh, the mother might feel unsupported. But one, uh, it, the experience of one 
young woman in this situation who had uh, severe depression over a long period. And uh, when she was prescribed a, a course of ECT, she said you know, the second or third day, she um, expressed immense gratitude for this, um, for the change that she understood that she felt. There's an enormous and burgeoning field of neuromodulation of other types now. So that's using non-invasive treatments uh, delivered in a, in a sometimes now in an outpatient setting. Given the current situation we have globally, given the financial situation we have, what, what can have the biggest impact in terms of intervening globally? It feels like you're, you're talking about a stepped care approach and you're talking about lots of interventions that have small effects, but if we deliver them to the right people at the right time, they can have a big international impact. What's your sense of our best current bet in terms of how we do that? Yeah, well, I think that um, we're, we're, I've been talking from the perspective of sitting in Australia, um, but if we think globally, we need to think of how to deliver treatments to when they're and or care of any sort when there are very few mental health experts or practitioners and the sharing of tasks has been proven to be very effective, whether it be lady health visitors to um, women in Pakistan and India when they've had babies, whether it be uh, people on a friendship bench in Africa. These ideas have also been, have been um, used elsewhere in New York City. The friendship bench work is important and we use it here in, in remote Australia. Um, uh, and many of these ideas um, uh, need to first of all come from the community. So the community control of what might happen in their own communities is, is both works best and is um, just. So the, the rights-based approach to thinking about what's needed is important. So that's, that's thinking about how to deliver care and the collaborative care approach to delivering these staged cares using technique tools such as task sharing and, um, uh, but based, uh, we're pretty convinced that it's still possible to develop a, a clinical formulation. So a person-centered approach, whether or not um, there are, there are many resources or fewer resources. But at a broader societal level, a universal basic income would do an enormous amount to um, reduce the rates of depression globally. And of course, um, it's not in our control, but stopping wars and, um, and preventing the displacement of people from their homes and countries um, and the prevention of... Um, family violence, all of these things would uh, reduce the burden of depression. In the way we've seen stopping smoking, reduce the burden of um, heart disease, reducing violence and poverty would reduce the burden of depression. Just tell us in a nutshell why people should come along to listen to your plenary talk 
at the SMHR conference in a few days' time. People often ask me, what's the best thing to do to prevent or treat depression? And uh, I say to them, well, lots of things. But uh, it's, um, it's, a, it's a wide topic and I'd love to have people come along and um, debate and, uh, and consider the evidence and um, the range of possibilities for preventing and treating depression. This is a neglected um, global crisis and we're concerned about it during the pandemic. We're concerned about it with climate the climate emergency and uh, what can we do? Well, we can, we can contribute by lending our voices to a number of broader concerns, but also within our own uh, ambit of healthcare. I'm sure you will have a large and enraptured audience. It's at 9.15 local time on Thursday, the 24th of March in the Grand Ballroom in Hobart. So I hope that goes very well, I'm sure it will. And we'll also be covering it live. So you'll have a big audience online on social media. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure, Helen, talking to you. It's been fascinating. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you very much, Andre. It's been a pleasure to be with you. I look forward to uh, the conference and the event too. Mm -hmm.